Not a gay goes by in the news nowadays that we don't hear another victim that has fallen to some kind of sad human trafficking and goes missing and loved ones scramble to figure out what in the world to do. Or the other side of the coin is that we have victims that have fallen into it by accident and don't know how to get out. Your host, Jillian Moss-Backman. I want to continue this conversation that I've had in the last couple of weeks about human trafficking and add another dimension to the story with my guest, Alisa McKenzie from Stand Against Trafficking, Stat USA, as it's better known on the internet. We're going to have a conversation about what they do and some intriguing and groundbreaking projects they have going on and how you can possibly get involved. Elisa, welcome. Thank you. I want to start out with a little bit of information about yourself, your background, how you got into it, and what you plan on doing moving forward. Sure. Um, About 10 years ago, um, I was getting my ordination through the Westland Church, and um, my husband saw that um, through the um, the website, the Westland headquarters website, that they were doing a um, conference um, to learn how to be a service provider for third world countries for human trafficking. And my husband literally said to me, Elisa, this is your calling. And I did not know anything about it, but I trust my husband <laughs> when he says something to me, I listen. And so we actually made arrangements for me to go to the headquarters um, in Fisher, Indiana. There was about 360 people from all over the world. You had um, organizations like IJM, um, World Vision, you had um, Salvation Army, you had um, you had all the organizations that were working in third world countries, you know, helping with um, slavery. Um, you heard a lot about the young boys who were, um, you know, being literally shields for, um, you know, in Africa, you know, killing, you know, in the civil war there. You heard a lot that was going on in Cambodia. And so anyway, I went to this conference um, and the whole time I was there, I just kept thinking, oh my gosh, this has happened in America. And we have literally just, um, we have disguised it. We, we have perverted this in America and we've totally has accepted as part of our culture. Um, and so I was just really broken and I decided that I had to find out what our government was doing because I knew from the conference that the government was starting to look at what was going on in America and, um, and they were starting to recognize that we were having a crisis here. So I went and I was certified through um, the federal government and then I got involved with establishing um, North Carolina Um, rapid response teams where I started bringing awareness presentation and helping to formulate um, a plan of action for communities. And so I've constantly have just let this kind of unfold and continue to educate myself and stay up to 
um, what is going on. And of course, we, we have to recognize the opioid crisis that has actually been taking place that has actually fueled this epidemic. And so there's a lot of things that has fueled it. Um, you know, obviously, drug addiction, gangs, you know, broken homes, lack of father figures, um, you know, the cultural influence, you know, poor role models, you know, the degrading of music and video um, games, um, just being desensitized by what we see on television and what it become has now become our everyday life. Um, pornography, you know, plays into fueling this. And so it's been kind of a, um, a progressive um, learning experience, and but not only for me, but for everybody. Like we're starting to really wake up of what is going on in our communities, and realizing that this is in every neighborhood. and And we actually stumbled upon um, going into jails, and that's where we kind of found our lane um, training and going into jails. But we started in 2016. Um, we were trying to um, establish a home in the mountains of North Carolina, and we had the place set up, and I was like, you know what, we need to see what's actually going on in this community, and the best way for us to do that is to go into the jails. So we started going into the jails, and our eyes were totally, we couldn't believe what we found. And I was living on the coast um, in Brunswick County, and I'm like, okay, if this is happening here, and I know that it's happening where I'm at because I'm like right in the middle of, you know, like in between Myrtle Beach and Wilmington. And so right away we did a community forum in Brunswick County and, um, and Wilmington. And we were like, okay, we've got to unfold this. We've got to find out what is beneath what's going on. And um, so we started going into the jails in 2017 and it is, it is so sad what we have found. Um, these women, they, you know, a lot of childhood trauma, um, drug addiction, um, suffers from mental diseases, multiple children, lack of education, lack of community support. It's like their life has unfolded since they were really young. And the question becomes, as a society, uh, is like, why are we criminalized victims? Why are we, why are we not helping these women um, who are suffering? And um, what can we do? And so at that point, we started developing programs that um, helped to bridge these women, helped them to... Um, get the help that they need. And so we've done that through several programs. Of course, we have our human advocate program. We have our um, jail program. We have our, what we call the first response program, um, our 10-month program, and then the community development um, program, and then our Haven Church program, because we believe that you have to hit every aspect of a person to be able to help them to get out of that life. I'm listening to you, and I'm trying to follow what you're saying, and, and you did a remarkable job explaining it. So now I want to kind of backpedal a little, little bit for us laymans that don't really quite understand all of this that's going on. I know that you've been involved in it for almost 10, over 10 years with your program, and right. um, you touched on a few things that I want to talk about this idea that you have about the three-dimensional programs that you use, Elisa, it looks 
just remarkable in that it sounds like you've been in this movement long enough to understand that, like you said, it's, it's three different ways it has to be addressed. First of all, let's take it down to the most simple component. Can you explain to me the difference between prostitution and trafficking? I think that is where people get a little confused on what what those two dimensions are and is there a cross point on that? So could you answer that first and, and then we'll move on? Yeah, I'm going to try my best not to get on my soapbox right now, okay? <laughs> well, okay. And even if you do, that's okay. You have a right. It's your program, and you understand it better than the rest of us. Go ahead. Well, like I said, it, you have to look beneath the surface on every individual and what leads a woman or a man into prostitution, what leads them degrading their body, not having a, um, a healthy relationship with somebody where they feel like they can go out on their own and make a living, get an education and, and have a healthy family with a healthy, um, healthy lifestyle. You know, we know that um, when you even think of um, prostitution, you think of unhealthiness, you think of unhealthy relationship, you think of, you know, how long can somebody actually be a prostitute? You know, is that, is there, is that a value career, you know, something that they're going to be able to make a living and be able to retire on, you know, so there's a lot of different aspects that you have to look at with prostitution to say, okay, wait a minute, did this person choose it or was a choice taken away from them at a very young age where they decided that this was their only choice? And that's where it gets really blurry um, because first of all, the women that we meet in the jail, they didn't choose it. Okay, so they might have prostituted themselves, but they did not choose it because if they chose it, that means that they would be making a good living and they would have a healthy life and they do not. So we have to like cross that out, the women that are actually in the jail, that this is not a choice. This is something that their life has unfolded. And, um, and so we can, we can pretty much, you know, say, okay, what has happened when we, when we get into jail and this is all a self-referral program that they do with us. One of the questions that we ask them is, have you ever prostituted yourself? And, um, and they will say, yes. And then the next question I ask is how old were you? And they will say, well, I was like 11 years old. Come on, 11 years old. And when did we as a nation or even as a world started calling, you know, um, little girls, 11 years old, prostitutes? When did we start doing that? And so right away, she is a survivor because her mentality, her emotional um, being, you know, was not able to make that choice. So something happened in her life that unfolded that got her to that place. So, and, and that's what I'm saying. We have to look beneath the surface to say, okay, what exactly is prostitution? And, and if we say that this is a, a career choice, then why was that career choice made? And, um, and a lot of times when you start asking the right questions, you'll find out that the choice was taken away. And, um, and a lot of it was because of um, drugs, um, poverty, um, lack of education, neglect, 
you know, there's a lot of things that plays into that. So um, for me, when I hear someone say that I've chose prostitution for a career, I, you know, I like to go a little bit deeper and say, okay, yeah, what made you decide to do that? You know, and it always ends up back in tears. And we have helped over 200 women. So we have a pretty good idea of what is what's going on right now. And then the then do you overlay trafficking on top of prostitution? Because from the information that I've been looking at now, what you're saying is let's talk about the 11 year old, which you put out there uh, so eloquently on a 11 year old really doesn't choose to go into prostitution. It just happens because of circumstances. Well, is it because a lot of times families start doing trafficking of their own children now. It seems like it it kind of goes hand in hand. Does trafficking come first and then prostitution or prostitution and trafficking? And how would you define uh, human trafficking? If we're talking about okay. prostitution and then human trafficking and then explain to us how it over, overlaps on that. Okay. So to answer your question, um, what we have found, and, you know, I can only give you um, what we have found. And I believe that if we can get some more, if we can get some more people doing what we're doing, um, you know, looking at reentry programs, because it's really hard to help a woman or a man who is in the life. Um, That means in prostitution out on the streets. Okay. It's really Mm -hmm. hard to help them because they have a lot of things around them that is influencing them um, to stay in that life. But when they come into the jail, all of a sudden, all that outside influence is gone, especially the drugs. And so what we have found, and when we talk to our women, again, over 200 women now, um, there's always been um, childhood trauma, always. Okay, so that means incest or um, sexual abuse by a family member or a neighbor, which has caused, you know, obviously PTSD. Well, when you're, when you think of PTSD, you think of military. Well, now think about it with a child whose brain hasn't even been developed. Okay. So what are some symptoms of PTSD? You know, you're talking anxiety, uh, headaches, anger, hopelessness, isolated behavior, um, denial. You're talking depression, numbness, um, you know, drugs, mood changes, um, sexual problems. Um, you know, so with PTSD, you're talking about a huge amount of disorders that is emotionally um, that actually affects you even physically also. So as a child, you're like, you're developing and you have no place to go. Unlike military people who actually do have a lot of help around them. So you just kind of think about that. Well, if a child does not know how to get the help, and we actually see red flags in our school system, which is like unbelievable to me, um, because the school system, they're normally the first ones to start seeing these behaviors or these red flags, and they don't they don't realize what is, what is happening, you know, and so they don't catch it or they haven't caught it. I should say, I think that there is some work towards that now. So obviously with somebody that can't sleep or have anxiety and has all these um, physical elements, you know, then it goes into drug addiction and, um, and then it just adds more. So it sounds like you do a lot of 
work with the individuals inside the prison or jail system once they're yes. in there. So that yes. seems to be one of your greatest focus and asset because it isolates them from the situation, the people, the, the you know, the opioids and everything else. Yes. I would imagine mm-hmm. that would be, um, I don't know, is it is it frustrating or is it cathartic? Does it work, Elisa, that people, once they are separated from that, do they, and of course they have PTSD, but are they ap- able to hear what you're saying? And do you, are you able to connect and explain to them that there's another way to heal? Yeah, actually, that's what, that's exactly what we have been doing. We go in there and we do programs like um, conflict resolution, um, basic human trafficking and who we are, um, trauma triggers and grounding. We identify their strengths. We, we bring hope to them. We give them coping skills. Um, we go in and we play games. Um, we, you know, we're not judgmental at all. We, we help them to understand how to resolve conflict and what does healthy relationships actually look like? You know, how do you break negative life cycles? And, and so we're, we go in um, because they, they're getting their physical and they have, they're safe. They're starting to, um, they're starting to kind of um, become, I wouldn't say normal, but they're starting to level out. You know, they don't have the drugs. They're not being abused. They're, you know, they're kind of getting a break. In fact, some of the women we talk to actually get arrested on purpose just to get a good night's sleep, just to get, you know, I mean, because they feel like they're going crazy. And um, so we bring in the social, the love and belonging piece of that. And we are like, hey, listen, you know, you are valuable. You know, you do have purpose. There is meaning to your life. You don't have to live like this. And, and we start bringing hope to them. We start showing them another way. We start, um, we start showing them that they don't have to have this life, that there's more to life. And that we want, if they're committed to it, that we're committed to them and helping them to find that life. This is your one aspect of your three-dimensional program that we're talking about, which is going directly to the victims inside prisons and jails. I want to know how long do they usually stay in there? Because, uh, you know, what we hear is prostitutes, they go in, they're bailed out within, you know, 15 minutes or two days, three days you don't have a lot of time to go in there and do all these process you're talking about. Are they in there for a long enough time that you can get to them and break the cycle, so to speak, a little bit, open, crack that door, but then they head right back out on the streets where they're known. What's the time frame, and how do you find these clients? Okay, so they self-refer themselves to us. Oh, and it's okay. interesting. Yeah, they so they're all self-referral. They all come um, because they want to be there. And that's interesting. That is one of the things about the first response home. I want the judicial system to actually work with us. So instead of putting them in jail, you actually put them in the recovery to actually, instead of a a jail, which is trauma itself, and you're actually put in with people who really don't care, you know, that actually chooses to stay in that life because they haven't unlayered enough is what I call it. Um, 
but that is one of the things that we're wanting to put in place is to have this home that's high security and to work with the judicial system to start getting um, the women and men the help that they need physically, emotionally with their addiction so that they can start thinking straight because you're talking, I mean, there is so many layers that it's really hard to even start the process of healing until you can take care of the basic needs or basic health. You know, um, if you can't, if you can't help somebody get well, I mean, if their teeth is rotten out of their mouth or they have, um, you know, hepatitis C or, or they have infections or, you know what I'm saying? It's really hard to be able to help them. And the jails do have, um, like a lot of them have like, you know, doctors there and stuff like that. And so that's the reason why sometimes the jails are effective because they are getting some of that treatment. Um, the first response home is a little bit more in depth because you also get peer to peer support. You get a psychiatrist, you get, you know, you get those things that every human being needs to, you know, stay healthy. But to go back to your question on how long of a period. So what mm-hmm. is happening right now is that these women and men are getting arrested. They get a misdemeanor put on them. So they might only do, you know, maybe three days. Um, if they do correct. get bailed out, sometimes it's by their, their trafficker. Correct. You know, their trafficker is like, okay, mm-hmm. hey, I bailed you out. Yep. So that's where the judicial system, again, can step in and say, wait a minute here. You know, like if we go in and we do assessment, we'll say, hey, this is a survivor you know, and give her a choice, would you like to go into our program, then having the judicial system say, hey, you know what, if you go through this program, we're not only going to help you pay for it, but when you come out, you're going to have, you know, you're going to have, you know, money for education or housing, you know, to reenter. So you got to give people, like, if they can't get their basic needs met, it's going to be really hard for them to have a healthy life. So having the everybody kind of working together to break these um, negative life um, styles and choices is really important. If they don't feel like they have a way out, they're going to keep going to they're going to keep surviving basically. Um, so, well, that's one of the solutions is getting the judicial system to recognize that they these women need intervention because they are vulnerable. And they're not going to be, they're going to stay entrapped until somebody rescues them. Um, The other thing is when you keep getting misdemeanors, it becomes a felony. And that felony then gives you more time. And when you have to do more time, that keeps you in the jail longer, which gives us a chance to really get in there and to dig a little bit deeper and to build trust with these women. So some of them might only be in there for a week or two, and we try to delare them as much as possible, speak truth to them, and um, and actually give them a chance to laugh. I mean, we don't we don't go in there like really extremely serious all the time. You know what I'm saying? Like we're talking a very, because, you know, I'm bringing awareness. But when I'm in there with the women, when we go in there with the women, we really try to be lighthearted and we try to really help them to diffuse and, um, and to laugh a little bit and to be able to um, value what they have to say. So we become really good listeners. But so we try to empower them. We instill hope in them and love whether we have two days with them or whether we have two years with them. It's still the same thing. We're trying to show them that there's a better life for them. I like that. 
You bring in a little bit of spark of joy. I think that's the number yeah. one thing, hope and joy that they lose, right? I mean, it's oh, just yeah. a vicious cycle. So the next part of your demential program is actually collaborative community effort. And you touched on a little bit about the judicial system. Let's let's talk about that a little bit, on, especially with law enforcement officers at that ground level and then the system on up. What are you doing in that area as a part? Of your program? So we bridge. We bridge with law enforcement, medical, service providers, and of course, faith based. And in bridging, we bring awareness, um, prevention, protection, um, and we try to reach into the schools. Um, in every aspect, when we look at what is in our community, we try to connect all of it to actually help a person. So the law enforcement, we used to think that the law enforcement was the first responders. So like they're the ones that were going to rescue the women. But actually, we have found that that is not true. The actual first responders are the medical. So you have like the emergency rooms, you have the merger cares, because what happens is that these women, their health issues become so severe or they get beaten up or they drug overdose or something like that, that the medical has to step in right away. And even um, these traffickers, because they're worth money, you know, because they're getting money off these women, will keep a woman somewhat healthy so that they could they could make a profit off of her and and let's be let's really be real about this okay human trafficking is all about greed it is all about money it is all about money and so if somebody can um, make money off somebody else they're going to and so they want to make sure that you know I don't want to be crude but they want to make sure that their merchandise stays healthy enough that they can keep using them And so we have found that the medical is actually the first responders. So we have to really think about, okay, where are we as far as our emergency rooms are? Are we, you know, what's going on on our emergency care? Are they recognizing this and are they able to intervene to help them? And so that's something that's really a a very hot topic right now. Um, Law enforcement has done it. Oh, sorry. Let me just say one thing. It surprises me that you say the medical community is first. If we're going to be real about it, a lot of time the medical community doesn't want to get involved, right? They want to be the ones that, that push it somewhere else. So I am a little surprised that you say the medical community is on the top rung of helping get these uh, victims into program. No, what actually what I said was we found out that the medical are the first responders. So we mm-hmm. thought at first it was law enforcement, but it's not it's medical. I didn't say that they were totally on board, but we are working towards. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. We are, yeah. we are working towards programs to, you know, and, and let's, and let's talk about this for a minute. Okay. Cause this, this is what, this is really what has to happen. There has to be um, a, re- a, a restoration, a reformation on how we do things. We can't continue to do things the old way when we're dealing with a totally different culture. You know, um, we're dealing with social issues today that are destroying our young people. And we can't continue to think that the old things are going to work for the, you know, the new way of life because they're not. And so, you know, this collaboration 
is really, like I said, you know, educating, getting in there, being problem solvers. What do we need to do? What does the medical need to do to actually recognize what is beneath the surface to start helping with this process and to allowing it to continue to recycle? And that's what we're talking about because I, I, I can't tell you these women are having children and they're all over. They're all over the place. Because the children bring meaning and purpose to their life. It's like the only thing that they have done in their life that is worth value. And what happens is these um, children are getting put in foster care. They're getting put into family members that might not be so healthy or they're getting, uh, you know, put into orphanages. I mean, it's just a mess. And it's causing havoc. Um, when I sat down with our share to say, I think that we're probably on the second or third generation of sex trafficking here in this county. He's like, I know we are, Lisa, because I arrested their parents and now I'm arresting their children. So, you know, we have to look at that and say, wait a minute here. You know, we, we have got to start thinking about what does it mean to restore and reform these programs to make them work instead of leaning on things that we know that doesn't work. Um, when you talk to these women, they have been in and out of institutions. They've been in and out of, you know, mental institutions and rehabs. And I mean, it's just not working. And so there has to be an intervention to actually help them to get the help that they need where they can actually make a living and feel good about what they're doing and um, feel valued as part of the community. So the next layer you were talking about was law enforcement and officers. Let's go over that real quick and what you're doing at that level. So law enforcement, believe it or not, are really, they're very passionate people and they really do want to help with us. And and they see it firsthand and they feel, um, they feel pretty like, you know, I've got a job to do by law and I don't, I can't recognize who's the victim and who's the trafficker or who's the, you know, I, I don't know the difference. And so one of the things that, you know, we try to say is, listen, you don't have to. That's what the human advocate program's for. Let us come in as a third party and, and say, listen, we're not here because we're law enforcement. We're here just because we care about you. How can we help you? And it, what it kind of does is kind of that um, middle person. I mean, how, how powerful it is that if you've had abuse your whole life and then somebody comes up to you and just says, I'm just here for you. What do you need? What is your story? And listens to you. And then um, let, it, like, let it unfold as it needs to unfold. Um, but it is really, like I said, we can go back to the power of choice. And I think that the law enforcement, you know, they're starting to see that. They're starting to see that these, these women and men aren't all criminals and that their life has unfolded because of severe abuse. And, and they do want to help. And they're really open. Um, like they've always, I have not ran into one sheriff that is not open to um, us going into the jail and doing reentry programs. And they're even open, um, you know, opening other, like I, I come in with some really like <laughs> some ideas that most, you know, most would not want to do. And they're like, okay, let, yeah, let's try it. You know, they're open to it. They're open to finding, you know, solving these problems because they're the ones out on the streets and it puts them in danger too. So law enforcement, I think, is doing a really good job, um, and FBI and ISIS are doing a really good job of, you know, getting a hold of this problem. Medical, we are really working towards service providers. So, you know, can we, we'll talk a little bit about that. I mean, 
Um, so service providers, their job is to provide, you know, housing, to help with addiction, to help with mental and one of the things that I have been seeing a lot of, um, even when I started this at first, you know, you would hear the women say that they're addicted to, um, they're addicted to, you know, heroin or they're addicted to cocaine or, you know, and, but now it's becoming meth and suboxone. It's becoming like prescriptions that, um, that, you know, service providers, psychiatrists and stuff are prescribing to them, which is not helping the problem at all. It's like they're just getting addicted to it. It's just feeding their addiction. So they're literally taking one addiction and trading it for another. And that does not help with a healthy lifestyle. It just literally, when a crisis happens, it, it makes them plunge. Um, so the other thing with the housing is that um, we have a lot of transitional homes, but Sometimes the structure is not there. That peer-to-peer support is not there to really help. Um, and when I say peer-to-peer, I, I mean like like the community, like having the community help um, with these issues. Because if you have a transition home, well, they have to be able to connect with healthy people to be able to walk out that healthy life. And if they don't have that, then it's really hard for them when they do have a crisis or they do need that extra support to be able to find help that they may need. And everybody goes through crisis in their life. There's not a single person in this world that doesn't go through crisis. So you have to help somebody that is vulnerable um, to be able to have that, um, that support. And so service providers, you know, are going to have to do a better job of not getting, um, not getting these men and women hooked on another narcotic but actually helping them to, you know, find the resources out in the community that is going to help them to be a part of that community and to stay healthy. And that's where the faith-based community comes in because the faith-based community, I mean, that is the whole point. It's community. It's, you know, um, helping each other. It's supporting each other. It's when a crisis happens, they step in, you know. So that's where the faith-based community comes in and really bringing this whole picture together because you might have the law enforcement that is for you and you might have the medical that can help the body um, and even maybe help a little bit with the mental and stuff like that. And you have the service provider that can help you maybe, you know, get you on your feet and help you with your addiction and stuff like that. But the faith base is there for the long term. That community that is there that you build a relationship, that, that love and belonging piece. So that coalition, that piece of it, um, really works on helping somebody feel apart, doesn't feel isolated because of their issues that they've helped, but actually that that comes together and works together to make sure that this individual gets every aspect of her life or his life to be able to build and to be to heal and to succeed in life and to dream again. Because how important it is to dream, you know? It is. And then really. what ends up happening is that they end up giving back. Because they have suffered so much and they know what it's like, then they turn around and they want to give back. Every one of the women that we have helped that has success, every one of them wants to give back one way or another. I mean, they want to, they want to help. Let me remind everyone, we are talking to Elisa McKenzie. She's the founder of StatsUSA.org, and I admire her passion that she has for this 
traffic, stand against traffic, and it's spelled S-T-A-T-U-S-A.org. I want to finish up, Aliza, with let's talk about that last prong on your dimensional program that you talk about so extensively about community support and follow-up. I think it's important you know, to get past the stage of where you're breaking the cycle. But if you don't have a safety net for these people or a program to put them directly in to separate them away from this negative behavior and things that they've been doing, it's going to fail. So can you tell us a little bit more about the long-term support that you have in place and where you want to go next with your own organization? Well, that's where the community resource centers come in. And I call the churches, (laughs) I call them the neighborhood watch. They're supposed to be the neighborhood watch. And in America, there's churches almost every mile to two miles. And so they would be perfect to do the community resource center. And what it does is it actually helps to provide those needs um, that your community might need that they cannot get that's not available to them. So for instance, they could have life coaching there. So if, um, you know, so if a church would agree to do this and open up maybe just even once a week for a couple hours, they, they, you know, the community would know that that's, Hey, that's where I can go to maybe get some toilet paper or to get some diapers or, or to maybe, you know, I'm having a crisis right now, maybe talk to a life coach or, or talk to somebody that can help me through this where, or maybe, you know, they can hook me up with AA or, Christian recovery or, or something that, you know, so having these um, resources and churches is a perfect place because, you know, there are churches are basically, they're supposed to be out there for the community anyway. And, um, but they need to like rethink about how they're using their building. Like, am I really helping, you know, my community and, you know, and if this is something that can help, then let's do it. We set up, we have a place um, here in Shalot Community Recovery Center, and then we have one that we work through 514 in Wilmington. And um, we go in and we do like the trauma-based life skills, and then the um, women get a life coach where they can actually talk through some of the things that's going on in their life and, and maybe get some next steps or we use what we you know, have formed as far as our community resources to get them, like they might have lost their job, so they need another job, or maybe there's something medical going on and they can't get to the doctor, we'll pay for them to go to the doctor, um, or maybe they just need some extra things because their food stamps have run out and they can't, you know, buy some food, and so they need, you know, some food, or maybe they need gas, and so the Community Resource Center actually sets up where they don't feel like they have to go in crisis to get the things that they need to survive. And it also provides that, again, that piece, that long that love and belonging piece. And um, I feel like if every, um, every community would set up, you know, something like our program. Now, every, this is what's interesting because the culture in um, different places is going to look different. For instance, like New York City is going to look a lot different than Brunswick County. So you've got to go into the jails um, to find out what is going on in my community, what is happening in my community that is fueling um, these issues that we're having. And then you can kind of look at, okay, so this is this is the majority of what, what we're looking, and these are the people who want the help. How can we help them? And then you have to, you know, problem solve on figuring out what, you know, what does it look like? 
And so it might look a little bit different. I feel like because of the opioid crisis and because this has been going on in our culture for so long, and the fueling aspect is still like the same also, that, you know, they're going to look very similar to what we have discovered. Um, but still, it might, might not, you know, you might have more, um, the culture might be a little bit different that you have to address. And that means like language barriers and stuff like that. And can I add to, can I just say that our country has done a great job of when a sex trafficking survivor from um, a foreign country is found, that, that man and woman, they get everything. They get medical, they get housing, they get mental, they get a TV visa where they could stay here. I mean, they get so much help. You would not believe everything that is set up for them to get the help that they need. And they get to become a citizen. <laughs> um, but here, the American girls who have grown up in this culture, they, I can't even get them. I can't even get them on Medicaid. I can't, you know, I can't even get them the health that, um, you know, for them to get the health, um, that they need. I mean, it is craziness. They, they can't get housing. They can't, um, they won't get there. I mean, some of them don't even have birth certificates or social security cards. And of course they can't get an ID without those. I mean, it's like they're, it's like they're non-existent and it's like pulling teeth <laughs> to try to even get them their birth certificate. Um, and then you, you know, so it becomes really hard for, for these women and men to be able to get back on their feet and, and not to have programs set up to make that easier, it spirals them. It's like they become, they self-destruct. So first of all, you got to find out what's going on in your community. And then you have to set up programs that is really going to help. And you've got to have people that is committed to helping the issue um, and to help problem solve and to build those relationships and to, and to stick it out with them. Even if, you know, even if they do self-destruct, still staying there, you know, still letting them know, Hey, you know what? I understand, but I'm here um, because you do have to delayer them. So I feel like, you know, let's, let's look beneath the surface. Let's find out what's going on in our jails, what's going on in our prison. Let's do some reentry programs, helping them why they're in there and then bridging them back out. And then let's do this in every community. Let's not just set it up here and there, but let's have this as part of our medical solution to solving the problems that we are dealing with today um, in our society, um, because it is not going to go away if we don't deal with us as a whole. We have to, we have to, each community has to take responsibility for itself. It has to, for this to work. And, and so that's what I want to do is I want to spread this. <laughs> I want to get this out. <laughs> get it in there, Lisa. Get it in there. That's that you keep going. It looks like you are very heavy on volunteer base. And if there's people out there that are so inclined to get involved with this, and I think it takes a certain kind of person, to be honest with you, that has a calling to do this because it's not easy work, but it sounds like it's extremely rewarding when the process starts working. Can you tell us a little bit about the volunteers that you have on working with your organization and how can someone out there become a volunteer and maybe bring it into their church, like you mentioned, or other avenues that they can start helping in their community? Well, okay. So, 
this is this is what's interesting. So everybody has a career. Everybody has something that they do that um, helps, you know, helps society to become, you know, economic, you know, in some way. So if each person just kind of stays in their lane and but they kind of take on this like this activist too, how can I help people in my community? You know, maybe it's volunteering at school or maybe it is, you know, volunteering at a food bank or maybe it's, you know, giving um, some money or maybe it's, you know, if everybody just does their part, then it will make a huge difference. It will make a huge difference. And see, a lot of people say to me, you know, what you're doing is like, you know, I would not be able to do it. But see, I didn't walk into this thinking that I could do it. Do you know what I'm saying? It's kind of been like I have... I have just opened my heart to basically women who still have a child mentality because of their abuse. And, and I decided, I'm like, you know, what am I going to do with this? You know, because this is, this is the way that if someone doesn't help, it's going to keep spiraling. And so I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to learn as I go. So we can't have the mentality of like, I can't do what she's doing or what he's doing or whatever. We just have to sometimes just put ourselves out there. And yeah, is it uncomfortable? Yeah. But, you know, sometimes relationships aren't comfortable and, but doesn't mean that you just dismiss them, (laughs) you know, you continue to build relationships and you continue to, um, you continue to help people and whether it's children or um, men or women or whatever, but there's so many different aspects of this. Like um, if somebody's retired, um, they could actually help drive a bus, you know, to pick up the women. Transportation is a huge big deal. They, They don't have a driver's license, so they can't even get to their doctor's appointments or they can't get to the grocery store. I mean, there's so many, if you just think about what it takes for you to be a healthy adult and to, and to function all the different layers. And we take it for granted because we just do it. But for these women, like you put a task in front of them and it is so hard for them to accomplish that task. It's like sometimes not even the big things, like they can get the big things like going, you know, showing up for school. But they can't do the small things like the small tasks, like calling, calling a taxi to get them to school. Like it's the small things that sometimes, you know, really get them. So I feel like um, what we like to do is we like to find out where a person just naturally flows, like what their lane is. Like, what do you like to do? What is, what is some of the things that, you know, um, are you an artist? Are you a musician? Are, you know, that kind of stuff really is empowering too. It's really encouraging. And, and so just, trying to figure out where a person is in their life and how they can make a difference in their community and helping to build on that. Because believe it or not, just like all the issues that fuel the things that has happened in our community, the issues of relationships and building people up and instilling hope and empowering them and encouraging them helps also. Do you understand? Does that make sense? (laughs) Yeah. And I understand it. it makes sense. I like what you said there, which was stay in your lane. I thought that was very insightful thought because when you start talking to people, one of the things that comes up is, well, I have nothing to give to this group. You know, they're doing this thing that I'm foreign to. I don't understand it. I haven't been involved in it. And a lot of fear comes up for people when you want them to get involved in this kind of 
um, organization, meaning, you know, is it dangerous for volunteers? Is it dangerous to go into a prison? I have worked in the system like that, so it doesn't affect me. At first, I was fearful, but then I understand what you're saying, which is they're just normal people in very unsad circumstances. But I think fear stops people from getting involved with groups like yours. What do you say to that? Well, I think that probably fear would cause you not to have an adventurous life. You know, I mean, fear could cause you not to get on that plane to explore Alaska or to, you know, I mean, fear always plays a part in everything. But I think that every person has to decide whether they want to live in that or not, because that is not um, that is not a a good way, a healthy way of living. Um, You know, nothing is you can't control circumstances. We set up really strong boundaries to make sure that um, our volunteers all have self-care. They have make sure that they don't get vicarious trauma, that they, you know, that they take care of themselves, that there is, you know, they know like when they come to volunteer, they're not volunteering, you know, seven days a week, you know, 24 hours a day. There are certain times. I mean, so we set up these boundaries and make them really clear so that they can have their life and still, um, and still, you know, be able to pour into other people also. But, you know, fear is really, I mean, that's an issue, a heart issue. Um, I don't think that any human being, um, here, fear can be good as far as protecting you, but if that, if that's not a valid fear, then you can really miss out on the best things of life because of that. And so I always say to people, I'm like, listen, you know, you're not going to know um, whether your fear is valid or not unless you take the step of faith to see. You've got, you've got to not let your mind take control and, make, and stop you from doing things that are important, um, not only to you, but also to your community. You've got you to take the chance. You've got to put your foot in the water and see how deep it is, you know. And if it's something that you can't do, well, then, you know, that's okay, you know. But at least you're able then to, like, talk to people and say, well, I couldn't do that. But, hey, maybe you can, you know, encourage somebody else to do the same thing because you tried and you didn't let fear stop you. Um, you know, it's interesting. Fear is one of those things that can really stifle us as a person and not allow us to become what, you know, who we're supposed to be. So, uh, you know, that's a, that's a tough one. And it sounds like you have so many good layers of, of places where people can work. So it doesn't mean that you have to go directly to the young ladies no. and do Mm-mm. life coaching. You know, you can, no. I like what you said in that you can go help them get to the bus or you can help them get food. You know, I think yeah. when you think about this, this area, they think of the pimps coming after the girls or the guys and, you know, they're standing around on a street corner watching everybody that comes in contact with the these people. And what I hear you saying is that, you know, don't let fear keep you from doing your part. And as you put it, helping in your lane, because there's a lot of layers and it's, you know, it's a safe way to do things. I mean, you don't have to be 
on the front lines with the law enforcement. So I have one right. more question. Oh, believe me, you. I don't I don't go out on the streets. I do not yeah. go out on the streets. I mean, yeah. I and and believe me, I have seen I have seen women like um in places that I know that are being trafficked and and I literally just call the people and that's what their job is, you know? And um and they do it really well. So um, you have to trust, you have to trust the resources in your community. Well, and it sounds part, like there's you know? so many different ways a volunteer can volunteer oh, yeah. without there having to be associated with that fear. So you said exactly. that you have helped over 200 women since your inception right. almost 10 years ago. I want you to end this conversation that we have with one really great story that had success. Leave us with a successful story that your organization, statusa.org, has created out there that probably wouldn't have happened without your intervention. Sure. Well, I could say a couple, but one that comes to my mind, she has like really grabbed a hold of my heart. Her name is Bonnie. And we met her in the jail um, about a year ago, actually. And she, um, she basically, we kind of, you know, built this trust and relationship and she was like, I really want to come to the 10 month program. I, I'm really tired of this life. I want out. I, I need help. I can't do it. I have children. I, I want to be at my child's graduation. I'm afraid that I'm going to miss it. I've missed so much already. And just practically begging, begging to come into our 10 month program. And so, of course, she did come. Um, she came in December, and she right away just embraced what we were doing, and she um, just did everything we asked. She got she got into our program. She started really building some great connections, and um, she graduated in October. She got married to a really awesome man, really awesome man. And she um, is now managing her own store. She, I mean, it has been, and her daughter is graduating in a week. And she told me, she's like, the one thing that, you know, I just beg God is that I would not miss my daughter's graduation. And I thought that I was going to, because she had a couple felonies on her. And she really didn't even know whether she was going to be able to, you know, get out of jail. Um, but they let her come to our program and she is, she's doing great. And I asked her the other day, I said, you know, do you, you know, do you, do you still get, does your mind still go there with the drugs and that life? And she says, well, she said, it's like once in a while I have a thought and she'll go, <laughs> she said, but then I'm like, what? That's stupid. I don't want that life. And she says, I just dismiss it right away. <laughs> and, and so, and so she is, you know, she is so doing so well. And we have a couple women, like we have one woman who's getting ready to finish up her CNA and she's doing really well. And um, so we have a couple really great success stories. And we don't even have, like right now, we don't have our 10-month residential program because I haven't been able to get the money um, together for it. And But we're still keeping our community resource center. We had one lady who, um, I mean, I, there's so many. You know, I have a lot of people say, well, what do you think is success, Lisa? What do you, what do you call successful? 
And to me, it comes down to every person that chooses to commit to healthiness. And, and we build that and we help to build that um, as a success story. So like, even though Bonnie has, you know, on the top, as far as success, you know, we have a lot of these small success too every day um, because they're delaying and they're reaching out for help and, and they're receiving the help that we have for them. Um, so it's, it's really neat to, to just, when you empower somebody and you give them um, just a chance a chance of not just, you know, not just stay in a crisis survival mode, but you just provide those needs so that they can actually build on what their heart really wants and what their hearts really dream about. It is, it is so rewarding to see that. And um, so success stories to me, it's like the little, but then, you know, now we're starting to see the big, like with Bonnie and, um, and that's really rewarding too, because we know that what we're doing is working. And, um, that is more important than anything. We've got to, we've got to solve these problems that we're having in our culture today. Well, I think that was very well said. I always like to end on a happy note. That's a pretty joyful story. And the thing of it is, is that you really don't know what you've done to spark something on the inside of a soul. You know, you may do something five years ago, but it takes about five or six years for it to catch up, and then something changes inside someone, um, maybe uh, a faith-based process or something like that. So I always yeah. like to hear those kind of stories because people get so negative about things nowadays. It's like, yeah, well, just another program. But you know what? If we don't keep doing programs like yours, it's going to get worse. And it's here to stay. And it's people like you and your volunteers that take the courage, the time. And it sounds like from your story, an understanding of an addict, a, you know, someone that's caught caught in the system and you've got all these yeah. different prongs of hitting it, that it's going to, you know, something's going to click inside these people. So it sounds yeah. very I, well. I call it the um, delaring. <laughs> I call it the yeah. delaring. <laughs> yeah. I like your isms. You have good ones. You know, stay in your lane. You're delaring. <laughs> this is very good. This is, you know, people can understand it when you put it in terms like that. Is there anything else you want to say? We only have a few more minutes, but I want to just kind of wrap up and, and give you a chance to say one last thing real quick. Anything? Well, I just want to just shout out to our communities and just say, be strong and courageous. You know, the days that we're living in might not be, you know, what we want, but we can make a difference to change it. We don't have to continue to um, watch, you know, our morals um, and um, vulnerable children being used. We can make a difference. And so it is going to, it is going to take each one of us, but we do have, this wonderful, um, wonderful thing called relationships. And um, if we're willing just to put ourselves out there, um, we can really make a huge difference in our communities. And, and that's what I ask you to do. Don't look at the big picture. Just look what's inside, what is around you, and see what you can do to help your own community. Well, very well said. That was excellent. Um, Aliza McKen McKenzie, founder of statsusa.org. That's S-T-A-T-U-S-A.org. 
find her on the internet, and I'm sure she's on Facebook and everything else. I am. Find You'll it. get all kinds of information yeah. on Facebook. <laughs> find it in your heart to volunteer. You know, if you're one of those people yeah. out there that you haven't found a place where you feel that your talents are needed and you feel like maybe you're alone and you want to give back, it's always good to give back to someone else that needs help. This sounds like a yeah. great organization to do that for because they can, they can put your talents to work in every area. So, Aliza, yeah. thank you again for joining us and I want to thank Imagine Publicity as always for allowing me to be the guest host for their series that they create and till next time keep safe and keep on loving each other thank you thank you